If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Uh, if you haven't been with us your first time, we're walking through Galatians together. Uh, we're studying the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the churches in that region. The Apostle Paul is the author. Uh, but we are continuing that series today in chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Now, as you turn there, I'd love to ask you a question. Have you ever found yourself in the awkward situation of forgetting something that you ought to have remembered? Here's a small one. Maybe you've forgotten where you put your keys or where you put your wallet just this morning or, or where you put somewhere else that you thought, ah, it should it shouldn't have been there, but it's not there, so where is it that I put it? I, I don't remember. Well, maybe, maybe it's an important meeting that you forgot. You didn't write it in your calendar. You told yourself to do that, but you forgot to tell yourself to do that again. Next thing you know, you're receiving a phone call or a text message morning of saying, hey, I'm here waiting in the parking lot. Unfortunately, I know that one from experience. You set either two records that day, on that day specifically. Either you got up and got ready and got in the car faster than you ever had before, or you sat up and in the time frame it took you to write 140 characters, you were able to actually distinguish between three true but different excuses about why you wouldn't be able to make it this morning. Maybe you've forgotten an important date, like a family member's birthday. You're scrolling through your social media feed, all of a sudden you, you see their yearly birthday post and you think, ooh, and then you comment, happy birthday, you're my favorite uncle, and you hope that he doesn't really find out how much of a favorite he is. We are so prone to forgetfulness as human beings, and the truth of the matter is we cannot remember everything. It's a hard lesson to learn, but it's freeing once we learn it. But what about those things we ought never to forget? Some things you should never forget but you inevitably do. This brings us to our text this morning. If you have your Bible with me, Galatians 5, verse 13 through 15, I'll read it for us. Follow along with me as I read. Paul says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I believe the main point we ought to consider in this text is this. The Lord frees and empowers us to love. So love by serving one another. The Lord frees and empowers us to love, so love by serving one another. We're going to do this in three points this morning. Called to freedom, freed to love, and loved to serve. First up this morning, called to freedom. Thinking back with me <clears throat> to verse 12 from last week, okay? Paul's great love and concern for the Galatian churches brings him to say, would that the Judaizers cut themselves off from God in their slavery to law, for you, Galatian church, have a different calling. Paul continues that thought here in verse 13. He's continuing the thought. If they want to be cut off, let that be their fate. However, you, verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. 
The beginning of verse 13, I take this as a loaded reminder of everything Paul has said to the Galatian church up to this point. And within this reminder, on full display, I can see the work of our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. In the hearts of sinners, he was willing and ready to save by his grace. And I want us to pause and just camp here for a second as we begin our time together, because there are some things that we should never forget, but we inevitably do. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, I would like to remind you of three things you should never forget. First, remember who called you. It is God the Father who called you. If you know Christ Jesus, if you love Jesus, if your faith is in Jesus alone for salvation, remember this, that you were once dead in your trespasses and sins and because of the great love with which the Father loved you, the Father made you alive with Christ. He saved you by his grace. Paul's speaking about this work of the Father in Galatians 1.6. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you. In the grace of Christ, or Galatians 1, verse 15. But when he who had set me apart, Paul, before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. It is God the Father who has called you. And this is not because of any works done by you, or that you are doing, or will ever be doing for him, before you were even ever knit together in your mother's womb. Romans 7 says, God was working all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, and he's the one who does the calling. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, that is, before the foundations of the world, before creation, anything ever existed, He also predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers, that is, us. And those whom he predestined, he also called. So my encouragement to you this morning is give glory to God who opens blind eyes, blind eyes that were once walking in darkness, not knowing where we were going, any of us, but the Father who is light sent his light into the world. He shone into our darkness, the darkness of our hearts, and that we were walking in and dwelling in, apart from him, rejecting him, and there is where he gave us new life. Notice specifically here in verse 13 what he has called you to. He's called you to freedom. But how does the Father set us free from our darkness? How does he set us free from bondage to the present evil age, Galatians 1, or from bondage to slavery, to law-keeping, to to living a life trying to live for God's approval by my own strength? How does he free us from that? Number two, remember who set you free. It is God the Son, the Lord Jesus, who set you free. Not you, not anything that you've done. It's Jesus Galatians 1, 3-4, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Or Galatians 2, 20, the second half, he says, Paul says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And then 5, verse 1, he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. See, church, the Father's love for you in that he sent his Son into the world because he loved the world so much that he would send Jesus to die for our sin and rise again for our salvation, to reconcile us to the Father. 
see the Son's love for you and that he accomplished the work of salvation on your behalf. He did it for you. Lived his entire life under the yoke of slavery so that he could then give it to you for free who trust him by faith for his life. In his life, death, and resurrection, he has died, lived, lived, died, and rose in our place so that we could have eternal life from him. See what great love that the Father has shown us in that we should be called sons of God. And indeed we are, with Jesus the Son. By faith, Jesus sets you free from sin. He sets you free from death. By faith, Jesus set you free from the bondage to the slavery of law-keeping to be right with God. By faith, Jesus set you free from the world, the flesh, and the devil. This morning particularly, he focuses in on the flesh. John 8, 36 says this, If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Set that in your mind and in your heart, church. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Remember as well that your freedom came at a great cost, but it was worth it to our Lord to pay that penalty. The penalty that we owed. If he didn't want to do it, he would not have done it. But our God did it. He planned to do it and he accomplished it for our good. What does that say about God's love for us? How great is his love? How unending. How merciful and gracious is our Father. The Son would purchase our freedom because he paid the price that only he had the authority to pay. He's paid the price. And he has the authority to set anyone free and everyone free who would come to him by faith. Can you say you are free this morning? And if you're a Christian and you're tempted to think I'm not free, let me ask you, what gives you the grounds to say that? For freedom, Christ has set us free. The Lord Jesus alone can set you free. Not cleaning yourself up not trying to get right with yourself and look in the mirror and be a better person or put on some religion and, and try to do the right thing in the world's eyes, not being a better person, as we'll see, that is just bondage. All of that is just more bondage. Slavery inside what seems to be a pretty little package, when in reality it's blinding us even further to the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Only Jesus can set us free. Number three thing, third thing to remember Remember who gives you life. Who called you? Who set you free? Who gives you life? It is, the, it is God the Spirit who gives you life, who lives in you now, and who keeps you living and living for Him. Galatians 2, 19 through 20, again, for though through the law, Paul says, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul's saying here he doesn't live by the law, circumcision and the commandments and all these things in order to live for God. He says he died to all that so that he could live to God. And how does he live to God? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Hear that? By faith, Jesus sets us free because with him, we've been crucified to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Crucified to the law's demands, dead to the world, dead to our flesh, and the powers that be at work in us and around us. And we've been made alive. We didn't make ourselves alive. Jesus made us alive himself. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. But what I want you to focus on here in our text, what Paul says, verse 13, it's, oh, sorry, back to 220, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
question, how does Christ live in us? We've talked about this a little bit before, but by way of reminder, Christ lives in us by his Holy Spirit. Third, who gives you life? It's God the Spirit who gives you life. God the Spirit, otherwise known in the New Testament as the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Christ, the promise of the Father who proceeds from the Father. This Spirit, God the Spirit, makes his dwelling place in us when we repent of our sins and we put our faith in Jesus. When the Spirit makes his residence in us, he seals us. The Spirit unites us to Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. We're made sons and heirs with Christ through the Spirit. It's the Spirit who gives life, Jesus says. The flesh is no help at all, John 6, 63. And then he, we remember this in Galatians 3, 2. He said, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? something you're doing to perfect yourself if it's God who saved you in the first place. You can't create life for yourself. You can't find life in anything else other than the Lord Jesus who gives it for free. The Spirit is the one who makes us alive. So if you're looking at anything else this morning for life, whether it's a job, a spouse, material things, relationships in your daily living, if you're looking at anything in your life other than the Lord Jesus who can and will and freely gives you an endless supply of the life-giving spirit, you will not find life. So stop seeking after it. You will not feel secure in your life because you're trying to find life in things that aren't Jesus. It will never satisfy you it will never feel you. But the reality is, is you can obtain life today. It's offered to us today. And you will be able to attain it in the end. And all that is through Jesus. If you aren't looking at him today, you will not obtain life today. And if you aren't looking at him today, and for the remainder of your days, you will not obtain life in the end. Galatians 5, 6, For through the Spirit... By faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Those who are in Christ by the Spirit wait eagerly for the end. When our triune God, who's done all of these things, who called us, who set us free, who now lives inside of us and lives through us, when our triune God will make all things new, including you and me. Where are you looking for life this morning? Maybe you know Christ, but you're, you're being tempted in ways to look away from Jesus at other things that you think are going to give you some sort of life. What things are tempting your eyes away from Jesus onto these lesser things? What is making you empty promises saying, we'll give you life if you just find me? It is only the Spirit who gives life. The Spirit seals us, sanctifies us. The Spirit completes our freedom. And if we forget these things... If we forget the work of our triune God in accomplishing and providing our freedom, we won't be able to enjoy our freedom. And we also won't be able to live in our freedom. The fourth thing to remember, remember what you've been freed from. We know from chapter 1, Christ has freed us from the present evil age. We know from 5.1, he's freed us from the bondage to the law. Because no one is justified by the law. We are only justified by faith in Jesus, Galatians 2. But here in our text, Paul brings another thing to the focal point. Look at verse 13. He says, Only do not use your freedom 
as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Notice when Paul says there only. He wants to make sure that he ties up any loose ends that might come undone for a statement like this. He says, you were called to freedom after he just talked for a while about how Christians are not under the law, they're not justified by the law, they don't need the law for righteousness because they have Jesus. He wants to prevent the church, to protect the church from any overcorrection. He doesn't want the church to go from one extreme to the other, to go from complete law-keeping, all law, all the time, to complete and utter lawlessness as they were living before Jesus. It'd be, like, it'd be like Paul's teaching us how to drive in the rain. When you hit a big puddle and you start to hydroplane, it starts dragging you this way. The Judaizers were saying, true Christians, if you're really a Christian, you're going you're gonna to show that by living by all the commandments of the law. But instead of yanking the steering wheel and hyper-correcting the drive away from that to complete lawlessness, to live however you want and however you want to in this life, live like you're free completely, he actually keeps the hands on the wheel. He says, slow down, stay steady, ride out the hydroplane. I'm going to show you how to straighten this thing back out, steady it until the tires meet again. And when the tires meet again, that's us driving straight. Christ fulfills the law for us. The Spirit of God fulfills the law in us and through us. Only, he says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So before we, we dig more into this, I want to point out here that, that Paul's focus um, has been to set us free from the flesh. Christ has set us free from the flesh. Freedom from the law does not mean lawlessness. It does not mean you live amorally. Do you hear that? Without morals, it does not mean that you live this way, which amorality actually turns into immorality, complete immorality, not living with morals. There is morals, but you're living contrary to those, which is where people find themselves living what they call doing what is right in their own eyes. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? People think we're going to hypercorrect, we're going to live amorally. There's no morals now. We do whatever it is that we want. This isn't the case. We cannot live in lawlessness because the truth is that God's law is perfect. It's to be desired. It's to be obeyed. And God's law must be upheld. And Christ fulfilled that law. Absolutely. We have been made righteous by faith with his righteousness, but we're still called to live righteously today. So how do we know how to live righteously? Well, God's law, God's standards, God's very character demands that we be holy as he is holy without blemish, spotless, because without holiness, no one will see God. So our freedom doesn't mean just do whatever we want. We must recognize that we have also been freed from our flesh, which would tell us to do whatever we want. That is actually bondage itself. Well, how can you say that that's bondage, Caleb? Well, because when Paul uses flesh here, I think he's talking about the old man, the, the old way we used to live before Jesus. The old man 
is the language that Paul uses in his letter to Romans, Ephesians, Colossians to describe who Christians were before we found Jesus, before Jesus called us and saved us. The old man that was bound in darkness and change, the old man who was bound to the sinful passions and desires of the flesh, the old man who did whatever he wanted to do, whenever he wanted to do it, because it's fully satisfied him in his mind and he's just going to keep doing what he wants to do. This was every single one of us. If you don't know Christ, maybe you might even find yourself living in these kinds of ways. You might even feel it. Don't you feel this? Maybe you feel enslaved to your wants. Maybe you feel enslaved to desires, almost like it's an addiction. You got to have this one thing. If you don't have it, you're going to lose your stuff. You got to have that video that you want to watch. You got to have that drink you want to drink. You got to have that hit you want to hit. You got to have that plate you want to eat. And the next plate after that and the plate after that, you got to fill your mind with the latest trends, fashions, weigh your self-worth by what everybody else is saying in the world or the next person that you see walking down the street. You are enslaved to living in the flesh. The old man. Because the old man says, live without the law. Live how you want to live. But that means live lawlessly. Do whatever you feel. Whatever feels good for you must be right, right? Whatever you want, your desires aren't bad. Whatever you want, you should have that, right? Because you deserve what you want, right? Does any of that siren song sound familiar to anything that we are hearing today in our culture? If you think freedom is getting and doing whatever you want, you are blinded by your sin. That is not the freedom that Christ has set us free for. His freedom is far greater. And I want you to enjoy and know the freedom that Christ has for us. He says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, instead of flesh, through love, serve one another. Paul comes back to opportunities for the flesh. We'll get there, but for now, We need to recognize what it really is that we've been freed to do. What it is that we do with our newfound freedom in Christ. And that leads us to the second point. Freed to love. True freedom frees you to be and do what you were created to be and created to do. You were not free when you were living in the old man, in the flesh. The flesh was that you were enslaved to. The present evil age, bondage to the law, doing everything in your power to either please yourself or justify yourself before God in some way you think you could do, but it cannot be done because he who calls does not call us with that kind of persuasion. Instead, he calls us to freedom. What Paul says is the new man, the man united to Jesus by faith, the man who's indwelt by the Spirit, a beloved child of God who now loves God. And loves his neighbor. Because this is what God created us to be and created us to do. Men and women created in the image of God. Who love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And who love their neighbor as themselves. True freedom has freed us to love. Look with me at verse 13 into 14. He says, through love. Focus on that with me. Serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's two things I want to I point out here. The source of our love and the work of love. The source of love. He says, through love, you're going to do this. Well, where does this love come from? 
Remember back in Galatians 5, 6, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, this love is the love that is produced in us. And I'm going to steal some language from some later verses in chapter 5. We haven't looked yet. You should read it ahead of though. This love is fruit that is produced in us by the Spirit of God who now lives in us by faith. It is through our faith in Jesus that the Spirit of God produces the fruit of love within us. You hear what I'm saying? It is by faith in Jesus, a growing faith in Jesus, that the Spirit produces love within us. That is to say that love, contrary to our cultural understanding of love, love does not originate with us. We are not the source of love, and we therefore have no authority to determine what love really is and what love really looks like. We both receive love, and love itself is produced from something outside of us, in us, by God, by faith. Love doesn't originate in us, therefore love does not naturally flow from us. So where does love originate from and, where, and, and, and where, from where does it flow? Well, let me read you this, 1 John 4, verse 7 through 12. John writes this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, because he's the originator of love, he is love. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. He's the producer of love. He is love, the originator. He's the producer of love. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God. If you didn't get it before, let's get it here. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, origin, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. His love is perfected in us. Whose love is it? It's his love. We need more of that love, don't we? And we need more of that love if we want to live the way in which God has created us to live. And the answer of how to get more of that love is in no way related to our flesh, related to our works of righteousness. Let me put it this way. On the one hand, you can't do enough to earn God's love. On the other hand, you can't redefine what his love is altogether. The only answer, the answer we need is to look in faith to love made manifest. What does this love look like? The only place we need to look is Jesus. We look at Jesus. Our God, who is love, manifested himself in the person of Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen him, touched him, John says. Jesus lived a perfect life of love. Typically, if you're sharing the gospel here, you might say he, he lived to the point, you might say Christ lived a perfect life of obedience to the law, which is, which is true. He, he lived a perfect life of obedience where we failed. Yes, but I want to point out this crucial point because I think Paul is really emphasizing love here that Jesus fulfilled the whole law because he loved God perfectly. 
and he loved his neighbor perfectly as himself. The two greatest commands on which hinged all the law and the prophets himself, Jesus said, Jesus loved perfectly. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the law and the prophets. The Son of God fulfilled the law by love. And when we look to Jesus in faith, his love fills us and changes us from the inside so we can start to love like him. With all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we start to love God that way because the love of God is in us and is working through us. It is God's love in us and a growing love for him that produces a growing love for our neighbor. Which brings us to the second thing, the source of love. Now we see the work of love. Keeping the law was a major concern for the Judaizers. We've seen that up to this point. Because rightly, they knew the law must be kept in order to be right relationship with God. How will these Christians fulfill the law if they don't keep circumcision or the commandments or any of the other laws? But the answer Paul wants to make it clear is Christ. Christ fulfilled the law. His righteousness is then accredited to us By faith, the righteous shall live by faith. That means we fulfilled the law through Jesus. And now as Jesus lives in us, he produces by the Spirit what the law requires. Paul makes it a point here in verse 14 to say that the whole law, not part of it, the whole law is fulfilled. That's because it must be fulfilled. The the Lord sets the standards, church. He's the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He says what is good and what is evil. What he says goes, and if the Lord has made it so that these laws must be kept perfectly in order to have fellowship with him, who are we to say otherwise? But the beauty of the gospel is that the Lord has also shown us we can't keep the law perfectly. And he knows us because he knows our frame. And the gospel is beautiful because God himself says they can't keep it, but I'm going to come myself. And I will keep the law so that I can give it to them for free by faith in me. And in this, God is the just and the justifier. God receives all glory, honor, and praise our Savior and Redeemer. We should look to him and worship him as such because the Lord is so good to us that he would save us, not by works done by us in the flesh, but by his perfect righteousness accredited to us by faith. Love fulfilled the law. And the love that he produces in us will fulfill the law's requirements in how we live. The Spirit fulfills the law in us. This is our faith working through love. And when Paul brings in this command, I think it's an important to note. I don't believe he has divorced the first command from the second that is like it. The reason I say this is because it's not even how Jews during the day of his time thought about the law. I think of Luke chapter 10. Listen to what it says. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? This is a lawyer of the day. How do you read it, Jesus said. And the lawyer said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. You see how the common thought of the day is the two together? And then Jesus says, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Even they knew that the two were inseparable. Love for God inevitably looks like the work of love for your neighbor. 
Or in their language, the love for a foreigner, the love for the orphan, the love for the widow, the love for the outcast. Love is produced in us by the Spirit, and we're called to walk in love, which is, according to 1 John, walking in obedience. We're called to obey this command, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Trusting the Spirit will work it out in us. So if you want to love your neighbor like this, we must love God more not ourselves more. One commentator points this out, and I think this bears repeating, especially with all the messages about love that we hear these days. This is what he says. The text does not suggest that human beings need to learn to love themselves before they can love others. Instead, it assumes that we love ourselves in that we invariably seek our own interests. Love, then, seeks out the interests of others and pursues their best. So I want to make a brief application here. The answer to loving your neighbor is not to love yourself first. You may have heard people say things like this. I need to love myself. I need to learn how to love myself before I can love somebody else. And and this, though, according to the scriptures, is far from what is true. The reality is, is in our flesh, the old man loves himself way more than he loves God. He loves his sin way more than he loves righteousness. How could we say we don't love ourselves enough when we are seeking every form of self-gratification that we can by nature from the time that we're born? I don't know about you, but when I was a baby, I didn't have to teach myself to be selfish. I just took my toys back because they were mine, and I didn't want anybody to touch them because they were mine. Probably food. Taking food back because it's mine. I was just selfish because I wanted what I wanted, and you're not going to take what I want because that is mine. I already love myself enough. I didn't need anybody to tell me I needed to love myself more. And this, I'll tell you, is a stretch, but, but just to be clear, this also ties a little bit into the narrative of, quote, learning to forgive yourself. In love, I want to tell anybody who might think this, I love you, I want to tell you this. God has given us no authority to forgive ourselves of anything. He's given us no authority to do that. We have not resisted our sin to the point of death, especially death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. We in no way have earned righteousness at all before God. Only Christ has, and therefore only Christ has the authority to forgive anyone any sin because ultimately all sin is against our holy and righteous God. Yes, we might sin against ourselves, but ultimately it's against God. We don't need to learn how to forgive ourselves. We have no grounds to do so. We need to learn how to rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross and know our worth In him, our new identity as a redeemed, cleansed child of God, in him that we are forgiven. Not that i got to forgive myself for something. I am forgiven because of Jesus. Because when Christ sets me free, the scripture tells me I am free indeed. Indulging in guilt and shame and despair and saying I need to to forgive myself. He's freed us from all of that. He's freed us from all of it. So stop trying to forgive yourself and run to the cross where the only one who lives, he's there and he can forgive you. He can cleanse you. He can make you whole. And he can make you walk in the newness of life that you have today. What greater assurance is this than the ever fleeting thought, I need to forgive myself of this or I can't get over this or I can't get over that. God has forgiven you. 
by faith, and that is enough. It's enough. Loving our neighbor as ourself in the way that is required, what Schreiner said a couple seconds ago, seeking their interests, pursuing their best, it begins with a deepening love for God because God alone can change our hearts and when he does, his desires become our desires. His ways become our ways. The way he sees humanity because the way we see humanity, it becomes the way we see humanity. And if we aren't viewing them through his lens, the lens that he gives us in Christ by faith, we will continue to take advantage of the opportunities that we have for the flesh rather than making them opportunities for the Spirit to produce in us the love that originates with God and can only be produced by God. So let me ask you, do you ask the Spirit to remind you of His great love for you? Your status before God as a forgiven, redeemed child of God, no longer bound by your guilt, your shame, your sin, because Christ is just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you. If Jesus cleansed you, why do we bring it up? That's not from him. It's from the enemy. It's from your flesh. Do you ask the Spirit to produce in you the kind of love that only he can produce in you? Do, if you don't, I would encourage you, start shaping your prayers like this. Ask the Spirit to do what he loves doing. I would also encourage you, ask yourself this question about love. What consumes your mind more? Is it Law or is it love? Knowing Christ and what he's accomplished, which do you think of more? And which do you think the Lord would actually have you set your mind on? Should it be set first and foremost your mind on keeping every jot and tittle of the law? Or should it be first and foremost on loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself? What would he have your mind be set on? I would encourage you that it's the latter because he exemplified that in his living and in his suffering. I'll tell you this, obedience doesn't flourish when it's driven by fear of judgment. It does not flourish. But obedience flourishes when it is driven by love for God and love for neighbor that is produced by the Spirit. Christ is our example of this. How can you ensure that you're keeping the law? That's another question. Well, I would encourage you, grow in your love for God and your love for your neighbor. And what Paul says next, uh, next week, walk by the Spirit, it's going gonna, it's gonna to help us think about this a bit more. But specifically here, we need to just recognize the whole law is fulfilled in this one word. The Lord does it in us. Which brings us to our last point. Loved to serve. Look back at verse 13. He says, through love serve one another. Now that word serve there is the same root word that Paul used back in Galatians 1:10 when he pointed out that he was a slave of Christ. One commentator translates, translates it this way, and I think this captures the depth of what he's trying to say. So hear me when I say this. He says, through love, perform the duties of a slave by serving. This serving through love is actually a new slavery. He just said we're free. Think also back to 110. It's actually in slavery to God and to one another here that we find true freedom. In Romans 6, Paul says we were set free from slavery to sin and we've become slaves of righteousness. We were called to freedom and true freedom looks like living as slaves of righteousness, which has, as we've seen, means we love God and we love what God loves. 
And we love our neighbor as ourselves the way God loves our neighbors and loves us in Christ. This slavery to righteousness means we can now live how we've been created to live, to do what we were created to do. Freedom to serve our God and creator and love other human beings who bear his image. That's what we were created to be and created to do. Look at verse 15 with me. This is what giving opportunity to the flesh looks like. Practically, verse 15, if you bite and devour, that means shred them apart, one another, watch out that you are not consumed or utterly destroyed by one another. That's pretty severe language. Here's two final ideas I want to point out here. The first is pretty straightforward, and the second, it's a contrast, and we'll end our time with it. The first one, from 15, selfishness through flesh tears down. Selfishness through flesh tears down. This is selfishness because the old man loves himself enough already when he starts to rear his ugly head unchecked, we start to look more and more selfish rather than selfless. We look more and more like our sin rather than looking like our savior. Using our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh looks like self-indulgence. I want what I want. I'm out for me. Whatever suits me is how I want things to be. Remember, Paul isn't just writing to individuals either, okay? This warning is to the entire church as a whole. The church is as a whole together. The danger is for the entire church to see and watch out for. Not just the one person who's given themselves over to the opportunity of the flesh. This is for the whole church to see. When the one person gives opportunity to the flesh, the whole body suffers for it. When the one person gives opportunity to the flesh, we all start to bite. And what happens when one bites? Then the other is now tempted to bite back. We've got this dog park over here. And sometimes when I'm working here during the week, I start hearing dogs going at it. And I hear their owners screaming so loud their names, blowing horns, trying to get them to stop. Understandably so. No one wants to see angry dog fights. But angry dogs aren't safe, are they? That's why we freak out and we try to get them to stop. They're not safe. They're uncontrollable. They're going mad. And I don't know if you've ever seen two dogs fighting one another, but once one starts, he snaps at the other one. The other one, what happens? He either snaps back or he scours away. It's a dominance thing. But specifically here, I want to look at this. One snaps back, but if the other one snaps back too, they keep going. They keep going, and eventually, if you don't break the dogs up, they will devour one another. They will utterly destroy one another, consume one another. And this is what the body of Christ, a church, would look like if we give opportunity to the flesh rather than to the spirit. We give into our sinful impulses all the time rather than living in the selfless love poured out for us on the cross. Paul is warning this church they will destroy one another if they live for themselves in the gathering rather than living in the service of through love. Let us not be Christians, members of Christ's church that give in to any and every selfish impulse to just bite one another in whatever way that may look. Maybe that looks like a quick comment. Maybe that looks like a rude word. Maybe that looks like neglect and frustration. Maybe that looks like letting bitterness sit in your heart and fester. Maybe that looks like holding on to offenses rather than overlooking offenses. There's a lot of ways an immeasurable amount of ways that we could bite. And there's not enough laws 
to keep anybody from biting. Let us not be Christians, members of Christ's church, who see how much we can get out of a gathering instead of how much we can pour into a gathering. Maybe that looks like coming into the gathering with your mindset on what you're going to get out of the gathering. Maybe that looks like intentionally forsaking service because you don't feel like serving and you don't feel like anybody cares anyway, so you're just not going to do it. That's what this looks like. Let us not be Christians, members of Christ's church, who would rather receive from everybody else's giving than to give back ourselves in any capacity. Let us not be believers like that, who either bite or put other believers in a position where they feel like they're tempted to bite us. Let us love one another. If we do that, if we allow those things to happen, if we're Christians like that, if we allow opportunity for the flesh, this will lead to consumption. Second thing, serving through love builds up. Selfishness through flesh tears down. Serving through love builds up. Listen to what Jesus said. He's our example of this kind of slavery. Our Lord, our Savior. Matthew 20. But whoever would be great among you, must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our Lord Jesus is our example of humble service for our neighbor. In this context, Paul's actually speaking to the Galatian churches as a whole. This service is of one another. The other members in the church serving one another. And the beauty that we see here when we serve through love is we are actually displaying the glory of our worshipful and precious God every time we gather. If we are serving through love, we are manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. We are showing people what Jesus would do, what the way that God loves us and loves them, if we live like this, we give opportunity to the spirit, not to the flesh. And notice, love's interest is to put the other's needs before its own. How are we doing with this kind of love, church? How are you doing, personally? A love that manifests itself in sacrificial service to one another. A love that seeks first itself to grow in a love for God. Are you pursuing God? Are you pursuing God? If you're not pursuing God, the rest of us are going to feel that. Does it start with loving God yourself? But it doesn't stop there. Does your love manifest itself in a real love for God that looks like loving the brothers? 1 John. How have you been loving your brothers? Love bears one another's burdens. Love rejoices with others' joys. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love builds up. Love serves sacrificially even when it's hard. When each one of us, in his own respective way, through love, is serving one another, our whole gathering would grow in strength. It would grow in unity. It would grow in perseverance toward the upward call in Christ Jesus. There are no footholds for bitterness and frustration in this kind of church. Because we're keeping short accounts with one another. There's no opportunities for the flesh because in humility, we individually are counting other Christians more significant than ourselves. There's no opportunity for the flesh, for the devil, because we are putting our pride and selfishness to the side. We're putting it to death 
we're not living in it, not walking in it, don't even want to look at it or have anything to do with it, and we're giving ourselves over for opportunity after opportunity for the Spirit to use us and work through us by His power in our gatherings. We're asking the Spirit to sanctify us and use us for for this person or for for that person. Our prayers become less about me and more others-centered. Our hearts become others-focused as we start to see our neighbor through the lens that Jesus sees them, more significant than himself. We come to church not for what we're going to get out of it, but for what we're going to give to it. We come to church with that person we've been praying for all week. We've made ourselves slaves for them all week long so that we could come here praying on their behalf all week. We could come here on Sunday ready to love and encourage them in Christ Jesus and all the ways that the Lord has directed us in our prayers for them throughout the week. We come serving for the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth week in a row because we've made ourselves slaves for someone else so that parents have a place to put their kids, or they've got music to sing, or they have prayers that they can pray alongside to after undoubtedly every single one of us has had a difficult week. We do all this for the sake of Christ. Eyes on Christ, knowing the call with which we've been called by the Father knowing the freedom Christ has purchased in order to set us free, knowing the Spirit is at work within us who gives us more grace. Do you hear that? Have you ever applied that to service? He gives us more grace when we feel like we can't possibly love anymore. We don't have any in the tank. Guess what? The source has never been you. The source is outside of you. It is the Lord Jesus, and he gives more grace We remember that love doesn't come from us, it comes from him, so we ask him for more love so that we can give more love to his people. And then we give, we pour ourselves out of that love, and we ask him for more so that we can love one another even more after that. Through love, serve. This is the way our Lord Jesus has shown us when when he descended from his heavenly throne into the earth, took on our flesh, took on the form of a servant, even to the point of death on a cross, buried in the dirt that he spoke into existence. Then three days later, risen from the dead, the Lord rose him out of that tomb. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father where he now rules and reigns forever and ever and ever and by his spirit can empower you and me daily to love one another and serve one another in the same way. Laying our lives down for the brothers. And glory be to God who loves his church so much so that he desires that she would be built up. And he loves us so much that he would incorporate us into that mission. That we might love one another. And he does all this Because he first loved us, and he himself lives inside of us and empowers his church to love in the way that he loves. Let us love, and through love, let us serve one another. Let's pray.